Chapter 12b. The Kingdom of God is Within You. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by David Shep. The Kingdom of God is Within You by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Constance Garnett. They cannot imagine that the leaders of civilization, the educated classes, could so confidently preach two such opposed principles as the law of Christ and murder. A simple uncorrupted youth cannot imagine that those who stand so high in his opinion, whom he regards as holy or learned men, could for any object whatever mislead him so shamefully. But this is just what has always been and always is done to him. It is done, number one, by instilling, by example and direct instruction, from childhood up into the working people, who have not time to study moral and religious questions for themselves. The idea that torture and murder are compatible with Christianity, and that for certain objects of state, torture and murder are not only admissible, but ought to be employed. And two, by instilling into certain of the people who have either voluntarily enlisted or been taken by compulsion into the army, the idea that the perpetration of murder and torture on their own hands is a sacred duty and even a glorious exploit, worthy of praise and reward. The general delusion is diffused among all people by means of the catechisms or books, which nowadays replace them in use for the compulsory education of children. In them it is stated that violence that is, imprisonment and execution, as well as murder in civil or foreign war in the defense and maintenance of the existing state organization, whatever that may be, absolute or limited monarchy, convention, consulate, empire of this or that, Napoleon or Bollinger, constitutional monarchy, commune or republic, is absolutely lawful and not opposed to morality and Christianity. This is stated in all catechisms or books used in schools, and men are so thoroughly persuaded of it that they grow up, live, and die in that conviction without once entertaining a doubt about it. This is one form of deception, the general deception instilled into everyone, but there is another special deception practiced upon the soldiers or police who are picked out by one means or another to do the torturing and murdering necessary to defend and maintain the existing regime. In all military instructions there appears in one form or another what is expressed in the Russian military code in the following words. Article 87 to carry out exactly, and without comment, the orders of a superior officer means to carry out an order received from a superior officer exactly without considering whether it is good or not, and whether it is possible to carry it out. The superior officer is responsible for the consequences of the order he gives. Article 88. The subordinate ought never to refuse to carry out the orders of a superior officer except when he sees clearly that in carrying out his superior officer's command, he breaks the law of God. One involuntarily expects, not at all. His oath of fidelity and allegiance to the Tsar. It is here said that the man who is a soldier can and ought to carry out all the orders of his superior without exception, and as these orders for the most part involve murder, it follows that he ought to break all the laws of God and man. 
the one law he may not break is that of fidelity and allegiance to the man who happens, at a given moment, to be in power. Precisely the same thing is said, in other words, in all codes of military instruction. And it could not be otherwise, since the whole power of the army and the state is based in reality on this delusive emancipation of men from their duty to God and their conscience, and the substitution of duty to their superior officer for all other duties. This, then, is the foundation of the belief of the lower classes, that the existing regime so fatal for them is the regime which ought to exist, and which they ought, therefore, to support, even by torture and murder. This belief is founded on a conscious deception practiced on them by the higher classes, and it cannot be otherwise, to compel the lower classes, which are more numerous, to oppress and ill-treat themselves, even at the cost of actions opposed to their conscience, it was necessary to deceive them, and it has been done accordingly. Not many days ago, I saw once more this shameless deception being openly practiced, and once more I marveled that it could be practiced so easily and impudently. At the beginning of November, as I was passing through Tula, I saw once again at the gates of the Zemsky courthouse the crowd of peasants I had so often seen before, and heard the drunken shouts of the men mingled with the pitiful lamentations of their wives and mothers. It was the recruiting session." I can never pass by the spectacle. It attracts me by a kind of fascination of repulsion. I again went into the crowd, took my stand among the peasants, looked about and asked questions. And once again I was amazed that this hideous crime can be perpetrated so easily in broad daylight and in the midst of a large town. As the custom is every year in all the villages and hamlets of the one hundred millions of Russians, on the 1st of November the village elders had assembled the young men inscribed on the lists, often their own sons among them, and had brought them to the town. On the road the recruits have been drinking without intermission, unchecked by the elders, who feel that going on such an insane errand, abandoning their wives and mothers, and renouncing all they hold sacred in order to become a senseless instrument of destruction, would be too agonizing if they were not stupefied with spirits. And so they have come drinking, swearing, singing, fighting, and scuffling with one another. They have spent the night in taverns. In the morning they have slept off their drunkenness and have gathered together at the Zemsky courthouse. Some of them, in new sheepskin pelisses, with knitted scarves round their necks, their eyes swollen from drinking, are shouting wildly to one another to show their courage. Others, crowded near the door, are quietly and mournfully waiting their turn. Between their weeping wives and mothers, I had chanced upon the day of the actual enrolling, that is, the examination of those whose names are on the list. Others, meantime, were crowding into the hall of the recruiting office. Inside the office, the work was going on rapidly. The door is opened, and the guard calls, Piotr Sedorov. Piotr Sedorov starts, crosses himself, and goes into a little room with a glass door, where the conscripts undress. A comrade of Piotr Sedorov's, who has just been passed for service, and come naked out of the revision office, is dressing hurriedly, his teeth chattering. Sidorov has already heard the news, and can see from his face, too, that he has been taken. He wants to ask him questions, but they hurry him and tell him to make haste and undress. He throws off his pelisse, 
slips his boots over his feet, takes off his waistcoat and draws his shirt over his head, and, naked, trembling all over, and exhaling an odor of tobacco, spirits, and sweat, goes into the revision office, not knowing what to do with his brawny bare arms. Directly facing him in the revision office hangs a great gold frame, a portrait of the Tsar in full uniform with decorations, and in the corner a little portrait of Christ in a shirt and a crown of thorns. In the middle of the room is a table covered with green cloth, on which there are papers lying in a three-cornered ornament surrounded by an eagle, the Zertzel. Round the table are sitting the revising officers. Looking collected and indifferent, one is smoking a cigarette, another is looking through some papers. Directly, Sidorov comes in. A guard goes up to him, places him under the measuring frame, raising him under his chin, and straightening his legs. The man with the cigarette, he is the doctor, comes up and, without looking at the recruit's face, but somewhere beyond it, feels his body over with an air of disgust, measures him, tests him, tells the guard to open his mouth, tells him to breathe, to speak. Someone notes something down. At last, without having once looked at him in the face, the doctor says, Right, next one. And with a weary air, sits down again at the table. The soldiers again hustle and hurry the lad. He somehow gets into his trousers, wraps his feet in rags, puts on his boots, looks for his scarf and cap, and bundles his pelisse under his arm. Then they lead him into the main hall, shutting him off apart from the rest of the bench, behind which all the conscripts who have been passed for service are waiting. Another village lad, like himself, but from a distant province, now a soldier armed with a gun with a sharp pointed bayonet at the end, keeps watch over him, ready to run him through the body if he should think of trying to escape. Meantime, the crowd of fathers, mothers, and wives, hustled by the police, are pressing round the door to hear whose lad has been taken, who is let off. One of the rejected comes out and announces that Piotr is taken, and at once a shrill cry is heard from Piotr's young wife, for whom this word, taken, means separation for four or five years, the life of a soldier's wife as a servant, often a prostitute. But here comes a man along the street with flowing hair and a particular dress, who gets out of his droshky and goes into the Zemsky courthouse. The police clear a way for him through the crowd. It is the Reverend Father come to administer the oath, and this Father, who has been persuaded that he is specially and exclusively devoted to the service of Christ, and who, for the most part, does not himself see the deception in which he lives, goes into the hall where the conscripts are waiting. He throws round him a kind of curtain of brocade, pulls his long hair out over it, opens the very gospel in which swearing is forbidden, takes the cross, the very cross on which Christ was crucified, because he would not do what this false servant of his is telling men to do, and puts them on the lectern. And all these unhappy, defenseless, and deluded lads repeat after him the lie which he utters with the assurance of familiarity. He reads, and they repeat after him, I promise and swear by Almighty God upon his holy gospel, etc., to defend, etc., and that is, to murder 
anyone I am told to, and to do everything I am told by men I know nothing of and who care nothing for me except as an instrument for perpetrating the crimes by which they are kept in their position of power and my brothers in their condition of misery. All the conscripts repeat these ferocious words without thinking, and then the so-called father goes away with a sense of having correctly and conscientiously done his duty. And all these poor, deluded lads believe that these nonsensical and incomprehensible words which they have just uttered set them free for the whole time of their service from their duties as men, and lay upon them fresh and more binding duties as soldiers. And this crime is perpetrated publicly, and no one cries out to the deceiving and the deceived, think what you are doing, this is the basest, falsest lie by which not bodies only but souls too are destroyed. No one does this. On the contrary, when all have been enrolled, and they are to be let out again, the military officer goes with a confident and majestic air into the hall where the drunken, cheated lads are shut up, and cries in a bold military voice, Your health, my lads! I congratulate you on serving the Tsar! And they, poor fellows, someone has given them a hint beforehand, mutter awkwardly, their voices thick with drink, something to the effect that they are glad. Meantime, the crowd of fathers, mothers, and wives is standing at the doors, waiting. The women keep their tearful eyes fixed on the doors. They open at last, and out come the conscripts, unsteady, but trying to put a good face on it. Here are Piator and Venia and Makar, trying not to look their dear ones in the face. Nothing is heard but the wailing of the wives and mothers. Some of the lads embrace them, and weep with them, others make a show of courage, and others try to comfort them. The wives and mothers, knowing that they will be left for three, four, or five years without their breadwinners, weep and rehearse their woes aloud. The fathers say little. They only utter a clucking sound with their tongues and sigh mournfully, knowing that they will see no more of the steady lads they have reared and trained to help them, that they will come back not the same quiet, hard-working laborers, but for the most part conceited and demoralized, unfitted for their simple life. And then all the crowd get into their sleds again and move away down the street to the taverns and pothouses, and louder than ever sounds the medley of singing and sobbing, drunken shouts and the wailing of the wives and mothers, the sounds of the acridorn and oaths. They all turn into the taverns whose revenues go to the government, and the drinking bout begins, which stifles their sense of the wrong which is being done them. For two or three weeks they go on living at home, and most of that time they are jaunting, that is, drinking. On a fixed day they collect them, drive them together like a flock of sheep, and begin to train them in the military exercises and drill. Their teachers are fellows like themselves, only deceived and brutalized two or three years sooner. The means of instruction are deception, 
stupefaction, blows, and vodka. And before a year has passed, these good, intelligent, healthy-minded lads will be as brutal beings as their instructors. Come now, suppose your father were arrested and tried to make his escape, I asked a young soldier. I should run him through with my bayonet, he answered, with the foolish intonation particular to soldiers. And if he made off, I ought to shoot him, he added, obviously proud of knowing what he must do if his father were escaping. And when a good-hearted lad has been brought to a state lower than that of a brute, he is just what is wanted by those who use him as an instrument of violence. He is ready. The man has been destroyed, and a new instrument of violence has been created. And all this is done every year, every autumn, everywhere, through all Russia, in broad daylight, in the midst of large towns where all may see it. And the deception is so clever, so skillful, that though all men know the infamy of it in their hearts and see all its horrible results, they cannot throw it off and be free. When one's eyes are open to this awful deception practiced upon us, one marvels that the teachers of the Christian religion and of morals, the instructions of youth, or even the good-hearted and intelligent parents who are to be found in every society can teach any kind of morality in a society in which it is openly admitted, it is so admitted under all governments and all churches, that murder and torture form an indispensable element in the life of all, and that there must always be special men trained to kill their fellows, and that any one of us may have to become such a trained assassin. How can children, youths, and people generally to be taught any kind of morality not to speak of teaching in the spirit of Christianity side by side with the doctrine that murder is necessary for the public weal, and therefore legitimate, and that there are men of whom each of us may have to be one, whose duty it is to murder and torture and commit all sorts of crimes at the will of those who are in possession of authority. If this is so, and one can and ought to murder and torture, there is not and cannot be any kind of moral law, but only the law that might is right. And this is just how it is. In reality, that is, the doctrine, justified to some by the theory of the struggle for existence, which reigns in our society. And indeed, what sort of ethical doctrine could admit the legitimacy of murder for any object whatever? It is as impossible as a theory of mathematics admitting that two is equal to three. There may be a semblance of mathematics admitting that two is equal to three, but there can be no real science of mathematics, and there can only be a semblance of ethics in which murder in the shape of war and the execution of criminals is allowed, but no true ethics. The recognition of the life of every man as sacred is the first and only basis of all ethics. The doctrine of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth has been abrogated by Christianity because it is the justification of immorality and a mere semblance of equality and has no real meaning. 
Life is a value which has no weight nor size and cannot be compared to any other, and so there is no sense in destroying a life for a life. Besides, every social law aims at the amelioration of man's life. What way, then, can the annihilation of the life of some men ameliorate men's life? Annihilation of life cannot be a means of the amelioration of life. It is a suicidal act. To destroy another life for the sake of justice is as though a man to repair the misfortune of losing one arm should cut off the other arm for the sake of equity. But putting aside the sin of deluding men into regarding the most awful crime as a duty, putting aside the revolting sin of using the name and authority of Christ to sanction what he most condemned, not to speak of the curse on those who cause these little ones to offend. How can people who cherish their own way of life, their progress, even from the point of view of their personal security, allow the formation in their midst of an overwhelming force as senseless, cruel, and destructive as every government is organized on the basis of an army. Even the most cruel band of brigands is not so much to be dreaded as such a government. The power of every brigand chief is at least so far limited that the men of his band preserve at least some human liberty and can refuse to commit acts opposed to their conscience. But, owing to the perfection to which the discipline of the army has been brought, there is no limit to check men who form part of a regularly organized government. There are no crimes so revolting that they would not readily be committed by men who form part of a government or army at the will of anyone, such as Bollinger, Napoleon, or Pugchev, to be at their head. Often, when one sees conscription levies, military drills and maneuvers, police officers with loaded revolvers and sentinels at their post with bayonets on their rifles, when one hears for whole days at a time, as I hear it in Hemvinki where I live, the whistle of balls and the dull thud as they fall in the sand, when one sees in the midst of a town where any effort at violence and self-defense is forbidden, where the sale of powder and of chemicals, where furious driving and practicing as a doctor without a diploma, and so on, are not allowed, thousands of disciplined troops, trained to murder and subject to one man's will. One asks oneself, how can people who prize their security quietly allow it and put up with it? Apart from the immorality and evil effects of it, nothing can possibly be more unsafe. What are people thinking about? I don't mean now Christians, ministers of religion, philanthropists, and moralists, but simply people who value their life, their security, and their comfort. This organization, we know, will work just as well in one man's hands as another. Today, let us assume power is in the hands of a ruler who can be endured, but tomorrow it may be seized by a Byron, an Elizabeth, a Catherine, a Pugchev, a Napoleon I, or a Napoleon III. And the man in authority, endurable today, may become a brute tomorrow, or may be succeeded by a mad or imbecile heir like the king of Bavaria or our Paul I. And not only the highest authorities, but all little satraps, scattered over everywhere, like 
so many general baronovs, governors, police officers even, and commanders of companies can perpetrate the most awful crimes before there is time for them to be removed from office. And this is what is constantly happening. One involuntarily asks, how can men let it go on, not from higher considerations only, but from regard to their own safety? The answer to this question is that it is not all people who do tolerate it. Some, the greater proportion, deluded and submissive, have no choice and have to tolerate anything. It is tolerated by those who only under such an organization can occupy a position of profit. They tolerate it, because for them the risks of suffering from a foolish or cruel man being at the head of the government or the army are always less than the disadvantages to which they would be exposed by the destruction of the organization itself. A judge, a commander of police, a governor, or an officer will keep his position just the same under Bollinger or the Republic under Puchef or Catherine. He will lose his profitable position for certain if the existing order of things which secured it to him is destroyed. And so, all these people feel no uneasiness as to who is at the head of the organization. They will adapt themselves to anyone. They only dread the downfall of the organization itself. And that is the reason, though often an unconscious one, that they support it. One often wonders why independent people who are not forced to do so in any way, the so-called elite of society, should go into the army in Russia, England, Germany, Austria, and even France, and seek opportunities of becoming murderers. Why do even high-principled parents send their boys to military schools? Why do mothers buy their children toy helmets, guns, and swords as playthings? The peasants' children never play at soldiers, by the way. Why do good men, and even women, who have certainly no interest in war, go into raptures over the various exploits of Skobolov and others, and vie with one another in glorifying them? Why do men who are not obliged to do so, and get no fee for it, devote like the marshal of Russia, whole months of toil to a business physically disagreeable and morally painful in the enrolling of conscripts? Why do all kings and emperors wear the military uniform? Why do they all hold military reviews? Why do they organize maneuvers, distribute rewards to the military, and raise monuments to generals and successful commanders? Why do rich men of independent position consider it an honor to perform a valet's duties in attendance on crowned personages, flattering them and cringing to them, and pretending to believe in their peculiar superiority? Why do men who have ceased to believe in the superstitions of the medieval church, and who could not possibly believe in them seriously and consistently, pretend to believe in and give their support to the demoralizing and blasphemous institutions of the church? Why is it that not only governments but private persons of the higher classes try so jealously to maintain the ignorance of the people? Why do they fall with such fury on any effort at breaking down religious superstitions or really enlightening the people? Why do historians, novelists, and poets, who have no hope of gaining anything by their flatteries, make heroes of kings, emperors, and conquerors of past times? Why do men who call themselves learned 
dedicate whole lifetimes to making theories to prove that violence employed by authority against the people is not violent at all, but a special right. One often wonders why a fashionable lady or an artist who, one would think, would take no interest in political or military questions, should always condemn strikes of working people and defend war, and should always be found without hesitation opposed to the one favorable to the other. But one no longer wonders when one realizes that in the higher classes there is an uttering instinct of what tends to maintain and of what tends to destroy the organization by virtue of which they enjoy their privileges. The fashionable lady had certainly not reasoned out that if there were no capitalists and no army to defend them, her husband would have no fortune and she could not have her entertainments and her ball dresses. And the artist certainly does not argue that he needs the capitalists and the troops to defend them, so that they may buy his pictures. But instinct, replacing reason in this instance, guides them unerringly. And it is precisely this instinct which leads all men, with few exceptions, to support all the religious, political, and economic institutions which are to their advantage. But is it possible that the higher classes support the existing order of things simply because it is to their advantage? Cannot they see that this order of things is essentially irrational, that it is no longer consistent with the stage of moral development attained by people and with public opinion, and that it is fraught with perils? The governing classes, or at least the good, honest and intelligent people of them, cannot but suffer from these fundamental inconsistencies, and see the dangers in which they are threatened. And is it possible that all the millions of the lower classes can feel easy in conscience when they commit such obviously evil deeds as torture and murder from fear of punishment? Indeed, it could not be so. Neither the former nor the latter could fail to see the irrationality of their conduct. If the complexity of government organization did not obscure the unnatural senselessness of their actions, so many instigate, assist, or sanction the commission of every one of these actions that no one who has a hand in them feels himself morally responsible for it. It is the custom among assassins to oblige all the witnesses of a murder to strike the murdered victim that the responsibility may be divided among as large a number of people as possible. The same principle, in different forms, is applied under the government organization in the perpetration of the crimes, without which no government organization could exist. Rulers always try to implicate as many citizens as possible in all the crimes committed in their support. Of late, this tendency has been expressed in a very obvious manner by the obligation of all citizens to take part in legal processes as jurors, in the army as soldiers, in the local government or legislative assembly as electors or members. Just as in a wicker basket, all the ends are so hidden away that it is hard to find them. In the state organization, the responsibility for the crimes committed is so hidden away that men will commit the most atrocious acts without seeing their responsibility for them. In ancient times, tyrants got credit for the crimes they committed, but in our day the most atrocious infamies, inconceivable under the Neros, are perpetrated, and no one gets blamed for them. 
one set of people have suggested, another set have proposed, a third have reported, a fourth have decided, a fifth have confirmed, a sixth have given the order, and a seventh set of men have carried it out. They hang, they flog to death women, old men and innocent people, as was done recently among us in Russia at the Yavzinsky factory, and is always being done everywhere in Europe and America in the struggle with the anarchists and all other rebels against the existing order. They shoot and hang men by hundreds and thousands or massacre millions in war or break men's hearts in solitary confinement and ruin their souls in the corruption of a soldier's life. And no one is responsible. At the bottom of the social scale, soldiers armed with guns, pistols, and sabers injure and murder people and compel men through these means to enter the army and are absolutely convinced that the responsibility for the actions rests solely on the officers who commanded them. At the top of the scale, the czars, presidents, ministers, and parliaments decree these tortures and murders and military conscriptions and are fully convinced that since they are either placed in authority by the grace of God or by the society they govern, which demands such decree from them, they cannot be held responsible. Between these two extremes are the intermediary personages who superintend the murders and other acts of violence and are fully convinced that the responsibility is taken off their shoulders partly by their superiors who have given the order, partly by the fact that such orders are expected from them by all who are at the bottom of the scale. The authority who gives the orders and the authority who executes them at the two extreme ends of the state organization meet together like the two ends of a ring. They support and rest on one another and in close all that lies within the ring. Without the conviction that there is a person or persons who will take the whole responsibility of his acts, not one soldier would ever lift a hand to commit a murder or another deed of violence. Without the conviction that it is expected by the people who not a single king, emperor, president, or parliament would order murders or acts of violence. Without the conviction that there are persons of a higher grade who will take the responsibility and people of a lower grade who require such acts for their welfare, not one of the intermediate classes would superintend such deeds. The state is so organized that... Wherever a man is placed in the social scale, his irresponsibility is the same. The higher his grade, the more he is under the influence of demands from below, and the less he is controlled by orders from above, and vice versa. All men, then, bound together by state organization, throw the responsibility of their acts on one another. The peasant soldier on the nobleman or merchant who is his officer and the officer on the nobleman who has been appointed governor the governor on the nobleman or son of an official who is minister the minister on the member of the royal family who occupies the post of czar and the czar again on all these officials noblemen merchants and peasants but that's not all Besides the fact that men get rid of the sense of responsibility for their actions in this way, they lose their moral sense of responsibility also by the fact that in forming themselves into a state organization they persuade themselves and each other so continually and so indefatigably that they are not all equal, but 
as the stars apart, that they come to believe it genuinely themselves. Thus, some are persuaded that they are not simple people like everyone else, but special people who are to be specially honored. It is instilled into another set of men by every possible means that they are inferior to others, and therefore must submit without a murmur to every order given them by their superiors. On this inequality, above all, on the elevation of some and the degradation of others, rests the capacity men have of being blind to the insanity of the existing order of life, and all the cruelty and criminality of the deception practiced by one set of men on another. Those in whom the idea has been instilled that they are invested with a special supernatural grandeur and consequence are so intoxicated with a sense of their own imaginary dignity that they cease to feel their responsibility for what they do. While those, on the other hand, in whom the idea is fostered that they are inferior animals bound to obey their superiors in everything, fall through this perpetual humiliation into a strange condition of stupefied servility, and in this stupefied state do not see the significance of their actions and lose all consciousness of responsibility for what they do. The intermediate classes, who obey the orders of their superiors on the one hand and regard themselves as superior beings on the other, are intoxicated by power and stupefied by servility at the same time, and so lose the sense of their responsibility. One need only glance during a review at the commander-in-chief intoxicated with self-importance, followed by his retinue, all on magnificent and gaily apparelled horses, in splendid uniforms and wearing decorations, and see how they ride to the harmonious and solemn strains of music before the ranks of soldiers, all presenting arms and petrified with servility. One need only glance at this spectacle to understand that at such moments, when they are in a state of the most complete intoxication, commander-in-chief, soldiers, and intermediate officers alike would be capable of committing crimes of which they would never dream under other conditions. The intoxication produced by such stimulants as parades, reviews, religious solemnities, and coronations is, however, an acute and temporary condition. But there are other forms of chronic, permanent intoxication to which those are liable who have any kind of authority. From that of the czar to that of the lowest police officer at the street corner, and also those who are in subjugation to authority and in a state of stupefied servility, the latter, like all slaves, always find a justification for their own servility in ascribing the greatest possible dignity and importance to those they serve. It is principally through this false idea of inequality and the intoxication of power and of servility resulting from it that men associated in a state organization are enabled to commit acts opposed to their conscience without the least scruple or remorse. Under the influence of this intoxication, men imagine themselves no longer simply men as they are, but some special beings. Noblemen, merchants, governors, judges, officers, czars, ministers, or soldiers, no longer bound by ordinary human duties, but by other duties far more weighty. The peculiar duties of a nobleman, merchant, governor, judge, 
officer, czar, minister, or soldier. Thus the landowner, who claimed the forest, acted as he did only because he fancied himself not a simple man, having the same rights to life as the peasants living beside him and everyone else, but a great landowner, a member of the nobility, and under the influence of the intoxication of power, he felt his dignity offended by the peasants' claims. It was only through this feeling that, without considering the consequences that might follow, he sent in a claim to be reinstated in his pretended rights. In the same way, the judges who wrongfully adjudicated the forest to the proprietor did so simply because they fancy themselves, not simply men like everyone else, and so bound to be guided in everything only by what they consider right. But, under the intoxicating influence of power, imagined themselves the representatives of the justice which cannot err, while under the intoxicating influence of servility they imagined themselves bound to carry out to the letter the instructions inscribed in a certain book, the so-called law. In the same way, all who take part in such an affair from the highest representative of authority who signs his assent to the report, from the superintendent presiding at the recruiting sessions, and the priest who deludes the recruits, to the lowest soldier who is ready now to fire on his own brothers. Imagine, in the intoxication of power or of servility, that they are some conventional characters. They do not face the question that is presented to them, whether or not they ought to take part in what their conscience judges an evil act, but fancy themselves various conventional personages. One is the Tsar, God's anointed, an exceptional being called to watch over the happiness of one hundred millions of men. Another is the representative of nobility, another as a priest who has received special grace by his ordination. Another is a soldier, bound by his military oath to carry out all he is commanded without reflection. Only under the intoxication of the power or the civility of their imagined positions could all these people act as they do. Were not they all firmly convinced that their representative vocations of czar, minister, governor, judge, nobleman, landowner, superintendent, officer, and soldier are something real and important, not one of them would even think without horror and aversion of taking part in what they do now. The conventional positions, established hundreds of years, recognized for centuries and by everyone, distinguished by special names and dresses, and moreover confirmed by every kind of solemnity, have so penetrated into men's minds through their senses that, forgetting the ordinary conditions of life common to all, they look at themselves and everyone only from this conventional point of view, and are guided in their estimation of their own actions and those of others by this conventional standard. Thus, we see a man of perfect sanity and ripe age simply because he is decked out with some fringe or embroidered keys on his coattails, or a colored ribbon only fit for some gaily dressed girl, and is told that he is a general, a chamberlain, a knight of the order of St. Andrew, or some similar nonsense, suddenly becomes self-important, proud, and even happy, or 
on the contrary, grow melancholy and unhappy to the point of falling ill, because he has failed to obtain the expected decoration or title. Or, what is still more striking, a young man, perfectly sane in every other matter, independent and beyond the fear of want, simply because he has been appointed judicial prosecutor or district commander, separates a poor widow from her little children, and shuts her up in prison, leaving her children uncared for, all because the unhappy woman carried on a secret trade in spirits, and so deprived the revenue of twenty-five roubles. And he does not feel the least pang of remorse. Or what is still more amazing, a man otherwise sensible and good-hearted simply because he is given a badge or a uniform to wear and told that he is a guard or customs officer is ready to fire on people and neither he nor those around him regard him as to blame for it but on the contrary would regard him as to blame for it if he did not fire to say nothing of judges and juries who condemn men to death and soldiers who kill men by thousands without the slightest scruple merely because it has been instilled into them that they are not simply men, but jurors, judges, generals, and soldiers. This strange and abnormal condition of men under state organization is usually expressed in the following words. As a man, I pity him. But as guard, judge, general, governor, czar, or soldier, it is my duty to kill or torture him. Just as though there were some positions conferred and recognized which would exonerate us from the obligations laid on each of us by the fact of our common humanity. So, for the example in the case before us, men are going to murder and torture the famishing, and they admit that in the dispute between the peasants and the landowner, the peasants are right. All those in command said as much to me. They know that the peasants are wretched, poor, and hungry, and the landowner is rich and inspires no sympathy. Yet, they are all going to kill the peasants to secure 3,000 rubles for the landowner, only because at that moment they fancy themselves not men, but governor, official, general of police, officer, and soldier, respectively, and consider themselves bound to obey not the eternal demands of the conscience of man, but the casual temporary demands of their positions as officers or soldiers. Strange as it may seem, the sole explanation of this astonishing phenomenon is that they are in the condition of the hypnotized, who, they say, feel and act like the creatures they are commanded by the hypnotizer to represent. When, for instance, it is suggested to the hypnotized subject that he is lame, he begins to walk lame, that he is blind, he cannot see, that he is a wild beast, and he begins to bite. This is the state, not only of those who are going to this expedition, but of all men who fulfill their state and social duties in preference to, and in detriment of, their human duties. The essence of this state is that under the influence of one suggestion they lose their power of criticizing their actions and therefore do, without thinking, everything consistent with the suggestion to which they are led by example, precept, or insinuation. 
The difference between those hypnotized by scientific men and those under the influence of the state hypnotism is that an imaginary position is suggested to the former suddenly by one person in a very brief space of time, and so the hypnotized state appears to us in a striking and surprising form. While the imaginary position, suggested by state influence, is induced slowly, little by little, imperceptibly, from childhood, sometimes during years or even generations, and not by one person alone, but in a whole society. But it will be said, at all times, in all societies, the majority of persons all the children, all the women absorbed in the bearing and rearing of the young, all the great mass of the laboring population who are under the necessity of incessant and fatiguing physical labor, all those of weak character by nature, all those who are abnormally enfeebled intellectually by the effects of nicotine, alcohol, opium, or other intoxicants, are always in a condition of incapacity for independent thought, and are either in subjugation to those who are on a higher intellectual level, or else under the influence of family or social traditions, of what is called public opinion, and there is nothing unnatural or incongruous in their subjugation, and truly there is nothing unnatural in it. And the tendency of men of small intellectual power to follow the lead of those in a higher level of intelligence is consistent law, and it is owing to it that men can live in societies and on the same principles at all. The minority consciously adopt certain rational principles through their correspondence with reason, while the majority act on the same principles unconsciously because it is required by public opinion. Such subjugation to public opinion on the part of the unintellectual does not assume an unnatural character till the public opinion is split into two. But there are times when a higher truth, revealed at first to a few persons, gradually gains ground till it has taken hold of such a number of persons that the old public opinion, founded on a lower order of truths, begins to totter, and the new is ready to take its place. But has not yet been firmly established. It is like the spring, this time of transition, when the old order of ideas has not quite broken up and the new has not quite gained a footing. Men begin to criticize their actions in the light of the new truth, but in the meantime, in practice, through inertia and tradition, they continue to follow the principles which once represented the highest point of rational consciousness, but are now in flagrant contradiction with it. Then men are in an abnormal, wavering condition, feeling the necessity of following the new ideal, and yet not bold enough to break with the old established traditions. Such is the attitude in regard to the truth of Christianity, not only of the men in the Tula train, but of the majority of men of our times, alike of the higher and the lower orders. Those of the ruling classes have no longer any reasonable justification for the profitable positions they occupy are forced in order to keep them, to stifle their higher rational faculty of loving, and to persuade themselves that their positions are indispensable, and those of the lower classes, exhausted by toil and brutalized of set purpose, are kept in a permanent deception, practiced deliberately and continually by the higher classes upon them. 
Only in this way can one explain the amazing contradictions with which our life is full, and of which a striking example was presented to me by the expedition I met on the 9th of September. Good, peaceful men, known to me personally, going with untroubled tranquility to perpetrate the most beastly, senseless, and vile of crimes. Had not they some means of stifling their conscience, not one of them would be capable of committing a hundredth part of such a villainy. It is not that they have not a conscience which forbids them from acting thus, just as even three or four hundred years ago when people burnt men at the stake and put them to the rack, they had a conscience which prohibited it. The conscience is there, but it has been put to sleep in those in command by what the psychologists call autosuggestion in the soldiers by the direct conscious hypnotizing exerted by the higher classes. Though asleep, the conscience is there, and in spite of the hypnotism, it is already speaking in them, and it may awake. These men are in a position like that of a man under hypnotism, commanded to do something opposed to everything he regards as good and rational, such as to kill his mother or his child. The hypnotized subject feels himself bound to carry out the suggestion he thinks he cannot stop, but the nearer he gets to that time and the place of the action, the more the benumbled conscience begins to stir to resist and to try to awake, and no one can say beforehand whether he will carry out the suggestion or not, which will gain the upper hand, the rational conscience or the irrational suggestion. It all depends on their relative strength. That is just the case with the men in the Tula train and, in general, with everyone carrying out acts of state violence in our day. There was a time when men who set out with the object of murder and violence, to make an example, did not return till they had carried out their object, and then, untroubled by doubts or scruples, having calmly flogged men to death, they returned home and caressed their children, laughed, amused themselves, and enjoyed the peaceful pleasures of family life. In those days it never struck the landowners and wealthy men who profited by these crimes that the privileges they enjoyed had any direct connection with these atrocities. But now it is no longer so. Men know now, or are not far from knowing, what they are doing and for what object they do it. They can shut their eyes and force their conscience to be still, but so long as their eyes are opened and their conscience undulled, they must all, those who carry out and those who profit by these crimes alike, see the import of them. Sometimes they realize it only after the crime has been perpetrated. Sometimes they realize it just before its perpetration. Thus, those who commanded the recent acts of violence in Ninji Novorod, Saratov, Oriel, and the Yuzinsky factory realized their significance only after their perpetration. And now those who command and those who carried out these crimes are ashamed before public opinion and their conscience. I have talked to soldiers who had taken part in these crimes, and they always studiously turned the conversation off the subject 
and when they spoke of it, it was with horror and bewilderment. There are cases, too, when men come to themselves just before the perpetration of the crime. Thus, I know the case of a sergeant major who had been beaten by two peasants during the repression of disorder and had made a complaint. The next day, after seeing the atrocities perpetrated on the other peasants, he entreated the commander of his company to tear up his complaint and let off the two peasants. I know cases when soldiers commanded to fire have refused to obey, and I know many cases of officers who have refused to command expeditions for torture and murder, so that men sometimes come to their senses long before perpetrating the suggested crime, sometimes at the very moment before perpetrating it, sometimes only afterward. The men traveling in the Tula train were going with the object of killing and injuring their fellow creatures, but none could tell whether they would carry out their object or not. However obscure his responsibility for the affair is to each, and however strong the idea instilled into all of them that they are not men, but governors, officials, officers, and soldiers, and as such beings can violate every human duty. The nearer they approach the place of the execution, the stronger their doubts as to its being right. And this doubt will reach its highest point when the very moment for carrying it out has come. End of chapter 12b. Recorded by David Shep, Los Angeles, California.